Tēnā my name is Will Appleby, and this is Animal Matters. Live export and fireworks, both harm animals and both are being ignored by decision makers. The export of live animals is on the increase this year, and a select committee in response to three petitions asking for a ban on the sale of fireworks to the public decided to do nothing. And winter grazing has reached boiling point, and it's now spilling over. Farmers are railing against the government, who are introducing new winter grazing rules under the proposed freshwater regulations. I'm joined by environmental campaigner Jeff Reed and SAFE's Marianne McDonald to discuss. Animal Matters is brought to you by SAFE for Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation. As always, we're here to open up for discussion the key issues facing animals. We bring you the latest news and commentary every fortnight with a focus on the exploitation of animals. Animal Matters is also on Patreon. You can support the show by heading to patreon.com forward slash animal matters and making a monthly pledge. Patrons can unlock bonus content and get early access to new episodes before they're released. There will be no ban on the private sale and use of fireworks after a parliamentary select committee decided to leave regulations as they are. The Governance and Administration Select Committee said the decision required the, quote, competing interests to be balanced and instead chose to make no recommendation. That was Wallace Chapman discussing on RNZ's The Panel last week that a select committee had recommended no changes to fireworks legislation. This decision came following an overwhelming consensus that the sale of fireworks to the public should be banned, putting their use solely in the hands of professional operators. The Government and Administration Select Committee compiled a report in response to three separate petitions, all of which asked for public sales of fireworks to be banned. SAFE made oral and written submissions when the Select Committee considered these petitions, and called for a ban on the basis that fireworks cause physical and psychological injury to animals. SAFE were joined by the SBCA, Local Government New Zealand and the New Zealand Police, who also wanted fireworks to be limited to professionally run displays only. Fireworks have extensive negative impacts on many types of animals, both wild and domestic, which can include the risk of injury, death and emotional distress. Animal sentience, which is roughly defined as an ability to have experience and feelings that matter to the animal, recognises the impacts of emotional distress on animals. Animal sentience is recognised in law under the Animal Welfare Act. The Select Committee stated that they appreciate the harm that fireworks can cause and the disruption to animal owners from fireworks being let off throughout the year. Despite this, they sided with the interests of seven businesses who import and sell fireworks to the public. In their report, the Select Committee said they have to balance competing interests. What this says to me is the Select Committee views the interests of SAFE, SPCA, Local Government NZ, the police and the thousands of people who signed three petitions are outmatched by seven businesses. To put it into context, Wellington postponed its Matariki fireworks last year because a whale was in the harbour. No one has advocated for an end to professionally run fireworks displays. Yet, the select committee couldn't find in themselves to ban retail sales of fireworks to the public because it would impact businesses. I'm reminded of a comment one of the submitters made to the select committee. He runs a business selling fireworks, and in response to the animal welfare implications from setting off fireworks, he said he thinks the animal welfare argument 
is a cop-out and people should train their pets better. He neglected to recognise the effects of fireworks on farmed animals and wildlife and then went on to say that he takes his dogs to his parents' house when he uses fireworks. Well, to be honest, I reckon this whole select committee report is a cop-out, and many others would agree. SAFE, Auckland City Council and Local Government New Zealand all made statements to the media expressing their frustration over the decision. To add further frustration to the mix, it's been over a year since the Agriculture Minister announced he would be reviewing the live export trade, which was prompted following an ABC News expose found New Zealand and Australian cows sick and dying in Sri Lanka. As of last month, New Zealand has now exported more cows in 2020 than the total exported in 2019. The number of live cattle shipped overseas in 2020 has already surpassed last year's total. This comes as the government is reviewing the practice, a move triggered last year after it emerged New Zealand and Australian cattle died after being exported to Sri Lanka. I think it's fair to say that live animal exports are ramping up. Within a week, two ships exported cows from Taranaki and Napier, between them sending over 12,000 cows to China. All of this is on the backdrop of news from Australia that federal agencies have launched an investigation into the inhumane slaughter of Australian cattle in Indonesia. Despite this, the Agriculture Minister has yet to give any assurances that the same thing won't be happening to New Zealand sourced cows in China. China, like many of the countries we export to, have very little protections for animal welfare, especially in comparison to New Zealand. The risk is that the animals that we export could eventually be slaughtered by means too cruel to be legal in New Zealand. They'll also likely spend their lives in concrete factory farms. And there's nothing we can do about it. We can't impose our laws on other countries. Despite the growing international evidence of animals suffering in the live export trade, Agriculture Minister Damien O'Connor hasn't put any limits nor a moratorium on the trade, opting to wait until the findings of the report are released after the election. In the past, he's expressed his preference for a conditional ban. Given his comments recently, though, around the usefulness of the trade in the current COVID environment, allowing farmers to relieve so-called pressure from a shortage of feed, it's difficult to gauge what will happen to live export when the report is made public. Moving on from whether or not we should export live animals to whether or not we should eat them at all, TVNZ1 aired the first episode of Meet the Family last week. A three-part series produced by Channel 4 in the UK, the show follows four families who are forced to make a decision about their meat-eating habits. They're each given a farm animal to raise at home over three weeks, after which they have to make a choice. Continuing to eat meat and send the animals they've bonded with to the slaughterhouse or become vegetarians and send the animals to a sanctuary. I first heard about the show when it aired in the UK last year, and upon learning that not all the animals make it, I was a little perplexed. I couldn't understand how on earth someone could kill an animal after raising him or her and nurturing them over three weeks. I watched the first episode last week, and now I can say I'm much less surprised by the outcome. Episode 1 saw a family given three chickens which are bred for their meat, commonly referred to as broiler chickens by the meat industry. Episode 1 saw a family given three chickens which are bred for their meat. These are commonly referred to as broiler chickens by the meat industry. The family very quickly bonded with them. 
They came to understand them as individuals with personalities. They gave them names and taught them tricks. The family also learned about the awful conditions these birds are commonly raised in and the nature of their genetics. These birds were bred from the fast-growing variety of chickens, which have been specifically bred to reach their slaughter weight within six weeks. Due to their rapid growth, they suffer from a range of health complications like lameness and cardiovascular illnesses. They grow so big so fast, they can't support their body weight on their baby legs. In the UK, slow-grow breeds of chicken are available, but I should note all chickens bred for meat in New Zealand are fast-growing chickens. After three weeks, this family have to make their decision. And boy, do they traumatise themselves over it. The kids want to save the chickens and go vegetarian, but the parents have convinced themselves that they can just eat less chicken from organic farms that produce slow-growing chickens, and everything will be fine. Still though, they struggle with the decision. There's lots of tears, and eventually they decide to have the chickens slaughtered. Honestly, I'm not surprised by their decision, because they weren't really given a realistic choice. They traumatised themselves over the decision to slaughter the animals they had bonded with, because the alternative choice of vegetarianism seemed unthinkable. What they needed was someone to say, actually, you don't need to kill the animals you love. It's easy to go vegetarian. How? It's easy to go vegan. And this is how you do it. There's so many plant-based meat alternatives on the market today to satisfy the cravings of even the most carnivorous meat eater. It's never been easier to take meat off the plate. I think that's what was really lacking from the show, which could have saved a lot of heartache for the family. Further to that, the decision to have the birds slaughtered was completely sanitised. They just had to make their choice. Then someone came along in their truck to pick up the birds and take them away. They didn't have to actually see what happened to those birds. Now, I'm sure many outspoken meat eaters and anti-vegan types will use this show for ammunition in their rhetoric. And there's a lot I'm glossing over. Exploiting the fate of an animal's life for reality TV is highly questionable, in my opinion. The life and death of an animal should not entertain us on a weeknight. But putting that aside, I don't think the show is a slam dunk against vegetarianism and veganism. The issue of intensive winter grazing reached boiling point last week. New freshwater rules were recently announced which included new regulations for intensive winter grazing. Certain sectors of the agriculture industry are a little upset, to put it lightly. Federated Farmers President Geoffrey Young even called on farmers to boycott the rules by not applying for winter grazing resource consents next season. This is a conversation that started last year, when Angus Robson released footage of the appalling intensive winter grazing practices that were polluting waterways and negatively impacting animals. A campaign is being launched later this morning, bringing attention on the farming practice of winter cropping or winter grazing. This is where both dairy and beef cattle are strip-fed on a paddock of crops, and once it's eaten down, the animals are are often left standing knee-deep in mud. Winter cropping happens in most parts of the country, but is particularly prevalent in Southland, a place known for its wet winters. Shortly following the launch of this campaign, the Agriculture Minister launched a winter grazing 
Rising Task Force, who delivered a hard-hitting report. The report found a range of issues, including a lack of reporting and detection, a lack of enforcement tools, a lack of clear rules and guidelines, and simply people becoming desensitised to poor practice and considering it normal. This year, Environment Southland has made numerous statements alleging that winter grazing practices on the whole have improved following a series of flyovers in Southland. But last week, SAFE released footage gathered in early August that shows cows standing and giving birth in muddy fields. The images are as bad as what we saw last year, which at the time prompted the Agriculture Minister to take action. I spoke to Marianne MacDonald last week, who is SAFE's campaign manager, and asked for her reaction to this new footage when it came out. I think it's just appalling that we're seeing yet again uh, these cows and their calves uh, forced to give birth in mud. And, you know, it's these vulnerable little babies that are being born into a world of cold, wet mud with no shelter. It's totally unacceptable. And do you think these are just a a few bad examples or is it widespread? Well, I'm really expecting some of the farming lobby to start trotting out the usual excuses that, you know, that it's just one or two farms. But the reality is, and we know this, that this is widespread. There are so many farms that have got similar conditions to this. And it's, it's in a way so accepted in some of these rural communities that people drive past these cows suffering like this and they don't even bother to make a complaint because it's just unfortunately business as usual. These, this footage was captured on the side of the road really, so it was out there for anyone to see. Um, yet the likes of MPI um, are urging the public to come forward and the public to make these complaints. Um when they see poor examples of winter grazing practices. Um, what do you make of that? And, and MPI's sort of, you know, they're encouraging people to come forward, they're giving out their phone number. What do you make of that, that sort of position they've taken? Well, of course, I'd encourage anybody to make a complaint when they see these things, you know, to get in touch with MPI. But the reality is it should not be down to individuals, volunteers to come forward with these sorts of complaints. It is MPI's job to be proactive. They should be out there. They should be looking for what is happening on farms. It's there, plain to see. And unfortunately, the fact this isn't happening shows we've got a broken system, a broken system of animal welfare enforcement. And with, you know, MPI, yeah, they haven't got very many inspectors. So they have got um, some reason to sort of make excuses that they're not being proactive. That's why this system needs to change. So when you talk about the system that needs to change, what sort of changes do you think need to happen? Well, when people make complaints, action needs to be taken that will actually help the animals rather than, you know, if if MPI inspectors do go to a farm, they just sort of go, oh, well, you know, it's not that bad. Maybe the weather's bad. So that's an excuse. They need to be stopping what's happening. Um, but also you know, stepping back, we really need to change the system. What we need is MPI to be replaced with um, an independent crown entity that actually doesn't have the sort of um, conflict of interest that MPI has. I mean, it's their job to promote primary industries, so dairy, all the other animal industries. And at the same time, they're supposed to be helping animal welfare. They can't do both effectively. So we need an independent crown entity that's you know, fully resourced and actually has the animal welfare at heart. 
Um, Jeff Reed has 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 made statements that you know you don't have to look far essentially to to find these kind of practices occurring or these kind of incidences occurring, which which we've seen uh, in the footage released this week. Additionally to the Crown entity, what do you think needs to happen next? Basically, the practice of intensive winter grazing, like we're seeing happening on so many farms, it needs to be banned. Uh, you know, this is going to keep happening. Animals are going to keep suffering. Our environment is going to keep being polluted if farmers are allowed to continue these sorts of practices. And also, it's time to start uh, having our Animal Welfare Act actually enforced. The fact that these animals haven't even got any shelter, and that's illegal under the Animal Welfare Act that says animals have got to have adequate shelter. It's time for our Agriculture Minister, Damien O'Connor, to start taking action on this. He's got the power. It's time for him to take action and ban intensive winter grazing for intensive winter grazing like as an example for southland and otago alone there are easily over two million animals going through this practice and uh the scale is huge it's quite hard to portray that scale uh but you do when you drive down the road it's almost every five minutes you know you're going past one of these intensive winter grazing lots and uh i'd say it's about eight to fifteen percent of farmed areas that's Jeff Reed. He's one of the activists who's been travelling the country gathering evidence of these intensive winter grazing practices. He's also currently hosting a series of talks across the country on the issue of intensive farming. For those that don't know about intensive winter grazing, it's where we've got, well, we've now got too many animals and in the wintertime, instead of having the animals pug up and trash our, you know, the good pasture, uh, we'll put them into an intensive uh, area and uh, feed them up on something rich like kale or fodder beet and over the winter time a lot of the time the these are like pregnant mothers you know cows that are about to give birth they go through the winter and they get a good condition because they're eating quite a good diet well they're eating a rich diet and uh it, yeah it leaves the paddock very muddy which causes all sorts of uh, animal welfare and environmental problems right so can you give us um maybe talk us through some of those problems um the animal welfare problems and and environmental ones as well it's not very nice for an animal to be uh, knee deep in mud. You know, when it rains, these paddocks can get really muddy. Uh, the animals have to walk back and forward to their water trough if they're lucky enough to have one, but uh, generally they do. And uh, it creates this massive pugging sort of area in the paddock. And over, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks of the winter can cause a real big mess. Uh, often there's uh, nowhere for these animals to lie down. Um, so you've got a lot of animals condensed into a small area. Pollution-wise, that can be a huge issue as well. When you graze the paddock down to you know bare dirt, there's nothing to hold any of that nitrogen or what's going into the land. So especially when it's on stony soils, the, the mud issue doesn't look so bad, but it is for environmental pollution because you've got this leaching soil. You know, you're on a riverbed and the nitrates go right into the groundwater, which can affect our drinking supply in some areas. And it's also quite hard on animals when they're walking around on these bony, stony paddocks. You know, they get swollen hooves and that. So, yeah, there's quite a few issues. And also around calving, um, farmers that don't take their animals off the crop in the winter, you know, they you know they give birth. It's, it's not a good look. <laughs> so you've, um, I mean, you mentioned stony soils because there has been occasions where images of cows standing in, in, in stony mud... Um, and the pugging may not look 
quite as deep as it would on other fields, but environmentally, that's just as bad. Yeah, or if not worse, you know, the muddy soils might actually hold the pollution a little bit better, but the stony soils, it's what you can't photograph, it's what you can't really see, you can't see this pollution going into our aquifers or into our rivers, but it is there and we know it's there. So how do, how often would you would you would you say that you find breaches of of, of the winter grazing rules? The breaches are a tough one because at the moment the government's attempt to make rules are still really murky. You know things like slope or gradient, um, the depth of pugging. It's still really all up in the air. In terms of the so there was a winter grazing task force last year which um, brought out. A set of rules would you say they're still quite murky so the task force was to address the animal welfare issues and uh at the moment yeah the task force did achieve some good stuff but without any compliance or enforcement you know our ministry for primary industries is you know sort of just what well, seems like turning a blind eye because we don't have the the means to enforce all of these rules and these new fresh water rules that are coming in which has caused a lot of discussion over the last couple of weeks what what is your impression of those? What's what's kind of your take on on these new fresh water rules, and specifically around consenting for winter grazing, which I mean, Federated Farmers has been kicking up a huge think about it. Um, what's your impression of them? Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of pushback from industry. You know, you've got these leaders that are just so you know aggressive and just. You know, they just want to fight and fight and fight instead of admitting that there's a problem, you know, and we can all sort of work through it. That, that for me, is really frustrating. Um, but as far as the rules for intensive winter grazing go, um, I think they've been watered down quite a lot. One of the key things to remember here is that you will still be allowed to do winter grazing on 10% of your farm. So for a 2,000 hectare farm, that's 200 hectares of intensive winter grazing. That's a lot of pollution. Yeah. So you're currently hosting a series of talks around the country on on, on winter grazing, uh, or part of your talks at least is about winter grazing. What, what's been the reaction from farmers who, who have attended those talks? Well, we've, we've had really good attendance from farmers, which is really positive. Um, many are still in denial of the extent of the issue, and they can continue to say you know, that it's just a few people offending. But, you know, that's not the case when you, you know, you do the mileage and drive around and just see the problem. So it's really easy for any industry to go, oh, that you get that with any industry, you know, a small percentage, you know. But this, at the moment, it's not a minority. It's a majority of um, farms. We've overshot, you know, these limits for animals that we can have on our land. And for us to get these animals through winter in good condition, Winter, intensive winter grazing is used we've got the evidence um that shows what's happening you know we we have the evidence to show this now and and what you can see is that this is stressing our environment it's really stressing our rivers in some places it's stressing our drinking water uh our animals are stressed they've been worked really hard pregnant mothers you know they're birthing calves birthing into this uh these poor conditions um, this this practice is stressing our brand. Uh, it's stressing out farmers, and it's you know it's risking our future. Really, the vision's clear. We need to backtrack ourselves out of this mess. You mentioned that a lot of the industry leaders, when it's talked about, when when some of the poor poor examples of in, intensive winter grazing is talked about, industry leaders will try and limit that conversation to a few you know bad eggs, so to speak. Um, and we saw this this week 
when the footage emerged of the cows giving birth in mud, um, almost immediately, like, you know, script, you know, this is a bad example, this is a bad individual, um, but overall, things are great, you know, things are doing a lot better, you know, across the board, this is just a few bad individuals, um, and I guess what you're saying is it's much more broad than that. And would you say that's kind of a, you know, a diversion tactic? Yeah, definitely. And I think the the main thing that we need to do here is admit that there's a problem. It's like any, you know, drug addict or, you know, someone who's, you know, got a substance problem. The first step to recovery is admitting that you've got this addiction. And that's where we are with these industries that are quick to point out that, you know, it's this or it's that or it's small or the classic example we, um, you know, we put those photos out and they were some weeks uh, since the actual event. And all of a sudden us compassionate, you know, uh, you know, citizens are getting slammed for not reporting these issues to MPI sooner, but there's no rules to protect or there's no rules to say you can't carve in mud. You can't have pregnant mothers giving birth in mud. So I don't know why they were <laughs> slamming us for being late to report something that's like totally legal. Um, and, and and going on top of that, um, admitting that there's a problem, you know, we've, we've been desensitized over the generations, you know, this sort of colonial behavior or how we're using the whenua. And we, we need to start seeing the problems, feeling the problems, um, admitting that there's an issue. We, we urgently need a change of heart for the way that we use our land, uh, obviously the kind of f- food that we're producing. So uh, until then, until we can admit, we won't be able to move on. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really advocating for us to all come together, not just – it's not like we're throwing stones at each other. I'm really advocating for us to come together and try and work out some solutions for a transition period until we figure out what we should be doing better and where we should be doing it and, and that leads me to my next question what what's this the message you're trying to communicate at these at these talks that you're hosting um i guess the message that we're trying to communicate is yeah going back to that we need to acknowledge that there's an issue um, we need to feel that there's a problem we need a change of heart before we can move on move into better land use and and then the other key message is that we have totally overshot ecosystem health limits we've overshot uh, the amount of animals that our landscape can our landscapes can take and yeah i'll say it again you know we've we're stressing our farmers we're stressing our land we're stressing our animals and we're stressing our uh, brand as a country so ultimately what what changes would you like to see made um ultimately the the changes i think in a lot of parts of our country the the type of uh, land use that we're doing you know the intensive agriculture is just totally unacceptable and you know for those landscapes and i'd like to see us uh, the changes i'd like to see made would be us transitioning us coming together admitting that there's a problem so that we can move into a clear direction of you know diversifying our food production ecosystem it's, instead of having monocultures monocrops you know we're looking into a wide range of you know plant-based options and you know as we transition into a clear future you've been listening to animal matters this podcast is brought to you by safe for animals new zealand's leading animal rights organization and produced by myself will appleby Make sure you subscribe to stay across Animal Matters on whatever your favourite podcast platform is. 
If you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners to find the show. If you want to support the show, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash animal matters. Until next time, ka kite anō.